When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Treatment Room Podcast with your host, Tessa Zolli. I am so excited for today's episode because we're going to be talking all about hyperpigmentation. I would say this is one of the most frustrating conditions, both as a client and as a provider to treat because it can be so stubborn and long lasting. So we're going to get into hyperpigmentation today, and you can think of this as almost like a free masterclass on hyperpigmentation. And I am joined by one of the most qualified people in the business to discuss hyperpigmentation today. Let's give a big welcome to Jan Marini. Thank you so much, Tess. It's such a pleasure to be back. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, guys, I was just talking with Jan about how this is her fourth time on the podcast. If you haven't checked out her other episodes with me, they are fantastic. I'm not just saying this, but some of the best feedback I've ever gotten on these episodes has been with Jan. So we've done an episode on acne, we've done the perfect consultation, and we've done skincare myths. So those are great ones to check out. Well, thank you. That is such a nice compliment. I really appreciate that. It's really good to hear that. Yeah. uh, You have such a unique presence and uh, knowledge base. So we're really lucky to have you and and to get to your brain today about hyperpigmentation. Well, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited too. So Jan, why would you say there's such an emphasis on discoloration and hyperpigmentation on the whole? You know, Tess, like you said, this is one of the concerns that you hear so much about. And actually, every single person on the face of the earth by the age of 35 will have abnormal pigmentation. And if you don't have obvious areas of contrasting pigmentation, you know, light, dark, you have something called background pigmentation. And background pigmentation is look at a picture of somebody when they're 20, then look at them when they're 30 and 40 and 50. It's where you don't have the same clarity. There's more of a muddiness. And and medically, it's oftentimes referred to as atinic bronzing. And it's really such a complex subject. You know, there are no really easy answers. And it's different for different people. And it involves aging. It involves hormones. It involves sun exposure. And they've done focus groups where they show pictures of individuals to the group that have lines and wrinkles and pictures of people with pigmentation. And oftentimes the pictures of the people with pigmentation are judged as being older than those with lines and wrinkles. So this is a worldwide issue, and it's one of the number one issues worldwide. In fact, in areas outside the U.S., sometimes it's even a bigger issue than it is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we'll talk about that too, how different backgrounds can affect hyperpigmentation. Um, Jan, for people who may not be familiar, could you explain a little bit about what are the different types of discoloration that 
somebody might see and what is the trigger or the cause behind this discoloration? Okay. So first of all, I'm going to preface this by saying there's no cure for discoloration. It's like acne. It's like a lot of different skin disorders. You can manage it. You can literally resolve it to the point where you may not notice it and get an incredible outcome, but there's no cure. It has to be managed all the time. And oftentimes we make this even more complex than it needs to be. Um, you know, we talk about melasma, we talk about chlasma, and we have all these different definitions. And really, when it comes down to it, the number one thing I want to say is that bottom line is pigmentation is the result of the body producing more pigment than it's able to eliminate. It's hyperactive cells that are producing pigment. But to take it a step further, essentially for discussion purposes, there's three types of pigment. And I'm going to tell you why it's important to know these three types of pigment. So in other words, it doesn't matter whether it's chalasma, melasma, doesn't matter what you want to call it. It's important to know these three things. Number one, there's epidermal pigment. Number two, there's dermal pigment. And number three, there's mix, which is a combination of the above two. Now, why is it important to know this? If you look under a woods lamp, and let's just say that you have two spots of pigmentation on someone's face, and they pretty much look exactly the same on the surface. And you look under the woods lamp, and one of them shows up and the other one disappears. The one that shows up is going to be what we call epidermal pigment. And the one that disappears is going to be dermal pigment. So epidermal pigment can be seen by a woods lamp. Now, again, why is it important to know this? Well, pigment, the primary factor in producing pigment and it being thrown after the surface is something called active tyrosinase. So when we're dealing topically, and it doesn't matter whether you're dealing topically with, this, with something that maybe doesn't work that well or works really well, either way, if you're trying to diminish pigment topically, you have to interact with active tyrosinase. Active tyrosinase is only found in the epidermis. So if you have dermal pigment, you can't affect that topically. It would be like me sitting here telling you, oh yeah, you can remove this tattoo with this cream that you put on topically. You'd laugh at me. So dermal pigment, this is why certain lasers, certain devices, which are designed to go after dermal pigment are so effective. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't make a huge difference topically. And the good news is that most pigmentation is epidermal. But the fact is that whether you have melasma, you have chalasma, you have solar litigenes, it can be both dermal and epidermal. There's no rule that says this type of pigment is only epidermal. So understanding that one thing, regardless of what you want to call it, will tell you whether or not you're going to have a successful outcome. And again, even if it was partly epidermal and maybe there's some dermal, it doesn't mean you still can't have a very good outcome and you can't diminish the appearance of it tremendously. But really, as practitioners, you want to be able to be very transparent and give individuals really good information education because that's how you get credibility. And that's why they keep seeking you out. And so if you can honestly tell someone, look, I can get you to this point, but you may need to also have laser. And certainly if you're in a physician's office or a medi spa, 
then this is an option. It's a way of defining it so an individual understands why you're taking the path that you're taking to get to that end result. Now, one other thing I want to say, regardless, regardless of whether it's epidermal or dermal, and regardless of whether or not you're able you use a laser, let's say you resolve the appearance of it completely. You haven't changed somebody's physiology. It still has to be managed every single day. You've just gotten to the end point faster. So Jan, I bet a lot of people are wondering, this is actually the first time I've ever heard hyperpigmentation explained on these terms of epidermal versus dermal. I bet people are wondering which types of pigment belong in which category and what is within, say, an esthetician's realm to treat. Well, you can actually treat any type of pigmentation. So kind of maybe I can explain it by better to talk about a little bit about the solution, because this would be a solution regardless of whether you're in a physician's office, a medispa, whether you're in aesthetic practice. And it's it just the, the limiting factor is whether or not somebody has dermal pigmentation. And again, it's generally not all dermal. And dermal pigmentation, you're not going to be able to topically address, but it doesn't mean that you can't make a huge difference and significantly even out the appearance of someone's skin tone. So I always say, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do. You can do whatever you want to address the issue. But in terms of what I believe really works and gets you to a point where you have a significant, a significant difference or able, if it's dermal, epidermal pigmentation, really resolve it, the, re, the appearance of it, this, there's no negotiation, no exceptions. And so this, first of all, you have to do a couple of things. So number one, when we talk about pigmentation, um, and again, I'm going to really oversimplify a very, very complicated subject, but you don't need to make it complicated to be able to address it. So when you see the pigmentation on the surface, that's a pigmentation that's already made its way to the surface. So one of the things that you can do, and it can have an effect that's very rapid, is you want to get as much of that out of the surface as you possibly can. And that's what I refer to as resurfacing. And the good news about resurfacing is that resurfacing also affects a lot of different common skin concerns positively. So for example, if you have mild to moderate acne, if you have the appearance of large pores, appearance of fine lines and wrinkles, your skin looks coarser, it just doesn't look as bright as, as, as you know, radiant as it could look. It is going to transform the skin, but it also gets the existing pigment out of the surface much faster. And when you do this, a lot of times people will say to you, wow, I noticed a difference in maybe just, you know, the first week or two. I had a physician that um, I do quite a few IG lives with, and she has a Medispa. And she told me, she said, you know, Jan, I tried being a physician. I have access to all kinds of different topical agents, and I've tried virtually everything. And I was astounded that in the first couple of weeks, I really noticed a difference. My skin looks so much brighter and so much more even. So that's great because that really engages somebody. That The patient is, is excited because they're starting to see something. So that's number one. That's done with the skin care management system. And the skin care management system 
is a starting point for virtually anything. And if, if I'm working with a famous celebrity, if I'm working with, you know, a, a famous physician, doesn't matter how educated they are. It doesn't matter how sophisticated they are. What the concern is, it starts with skincare management. Now, let me give you an example of one of the products in the skincare management system that has the effect of being able to sort of resurface and really help making the skin look more even initially. And then we'll, we'll get to part two. So the third product, and they're numbered, the third product in the system is something called BioClear. And BioClear is glycolic, salicylic, and azelaic acid. Azelaic acid is sold by prescription for acne. It's sold by prescription for rosacea. It's also one of the best agents we've seen for the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles and just making the, the skin look really very resurfaced, very refined. And it's a pigment lifting agent. And actually, in much higher percentages years ago, physicians would use it for areas of pigment that were virtually impossible to topical or epidermal pigment to get rid of any other way. But what it does is it just rapidly really brightens the skin and makes it look so much more even. But when the skin is resurfaced and it's also reflective and it just looks so much more refined and a lot of the other imperfections are addressed, the light reflects away. So it just looks better overall and more even. And the second part of that is the glycolic acid. Now, glycolic acid is we could we could spend two hours just talking about glycolic. But first of all, number one, it also has the ability to rapidly diminish a lot of the pigment on the surface. It does this by dissolving and dislodging the glue-like substance or cellular cement between cells. And it also does this in the follicle. And so when you have follicular retention, which is the cell sticking together, that's the beginning of the acne process, it helps to interrupt the acne process. It's one of the primary agents that we use for that. So again, you're addressing a number of different things at the same time. And also it just makes the skin look so much more vibrant and it makes it look much plumper. You know, technically, chemically, it's categorized as a moisturizer. So what it does is it stimulates substances in the skin known as glycosaminoglycans, mucopolysaccharides, ceramides, phospholipids, hyaluronic acid. And I, we could go on about how it also has been shown in studies, and these are studies over the last you know, 30 years or more, um, and, and being able to stimulate collagen and being able to deal with di different types of skin disorders. And then finally, we have salicylic acid, and we've all heard of that. It's good for acne, helps to kind of brighten the skin also, and it's, it's a nice um, kind of secondary resurfacing agent. So you put those three together, I have never seen anything for home care that resurfaces skin better than that does. And the system has other topical agents that also address some of the factors that go into pigmentation. Because if we kind of take it apart, the number one factor in pigmentation is inflammation. And what that what we're actually saying is when you're exposed to UV light, even if it's just for a matter of moments, you have an inflammatory reaction. And it also damages the instructions coming from your DNA, 
And those instructions tell your body how to repair or whether or not you should have pigmentation or, or, or not have pigmentation or whether you, you're going to have a line or a wrinkle. And so it, it actually it's able to help the skin to act in a much younger manner. And the fact is, Tess, anybody out there, how many people do you treat that are nine or 10 years old that have pigmentation? Zero. Now, what if a 10-year-old went out in the sun and got a really bad sunburn and had a lot of damage throughout an entire summer, you still wouldn't be treating them for pigmentation. Why is that? Because it damages the DNA and it could take 10, 20, 30 years to show up. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about how to kind of help to reverse some of that. Um, so it's, it's, so the skincare management system is step one. Okay. Then there's step two. Now, step two, we're really going to get into some of the causative kinds of issues, going to a little, get a little bit deeper. So you heard me say that active tyrosinase is one of the primary factors that goes into the manufacture of pigment, right? Yes. So what we typically do, whether you're using something like hydroquinone or you're using some other pigment lightening aging, is you want to downregulate. You want to lessen the production of active tyrosinase. And you do that for, through what is called tyrosinase inhibitors. So there's four different parts to this next Thing that I'm going to tell you. And this is something called Luminate. And there's Luminate and there's Luminate MD. And so Luminate, first of all, in the first part of the technology, has a whole bunch of tyrosinase inhibitors. And these are tyrosinase inhibitors that have been shown medically to be able to have a significant effect on helping to downregulate active tyrosinase. Now that's nothing new because again, whether you're using hydroquinone or using something else, you're going to be down. That's the whole point is you're downregulating active tyrosinase. Now here's where it gets into a real game changer. And this hasn't been done before. Now, before I tell you this, what I want to point out is that Luminate has been presented the study in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology. That's a peer-reviewed medical journal. It went head-to-head, half-face comparison with prescription hydroquinone, which is controversial, but it's considered the gold standard. And a lot of doctors say, well, you know, I wish I could use something else, but it works better than anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In this study, in the head-to-head -head comparison, Luminate outperformed hydroquinone, prescription hydroquinone. Now, so the second part of the technology, and this was in the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology, peer-reviewed medical journal. So the second part of the technology has to do with a melanocyte-stimulating hormone. Now, we all have this melanocyte-stimulating hormone, and we pretty much have as much, we produce as much of this, whether we are really fair-skinned or whether we have a lot of pigment. Now, you may produce more of this, if you're on birth control pills, you may produce more if you're pregnant, but pr pretty much we all produce the same amount. And it plays a role genetically in how we react to the sun. Why is it that some people can go outside for five minutes and they pigment? Why is it some people sit in a hot car and they pigment? 
And then there's other individuals where, you know, they get quite a bit of sun exposure and pigmentation is not necessarily one of their issues. So this plays a primary role in how you're going to react. And for the first time, we have a peptide that actually down-regulates that melanocyte-stimulating hormone. So this is a real game changer. Yeah, that is a game changer. I haven't heard peptides really talked about in that context either. Well, you know, we're just really, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of peptides. And I look at peptides as a toolbox. And most of the peptides that we see are sort of anti-aging peptides that typically work by fooling the skin into thinking they're wounded so that there's some collagen reorganization. But there are peptides that are antibacterial, peptides that again, can down-regulate certain inflammatory pathways. And for example, in fetal development, if there's just one peptide that's out of sync, that child will be born with cystic fibrosis. So when you think of peptides and how the, the dramatic roles that they can play, and we've, we've barely been able to, barely have started to unlock the key. So what we're doing is really superficial, but we're getting more and more into being able to work with these certain peptides that can really have an incredible effect. And so that's the second area of technology. Now, the third is turmeric. So turmeric, everybody's probably heard of it, and a lot of people take it internally because it's so anti-inflammatory. But turmeric is a powerful tyrosinase inhibitor. And in India, in East India, Turmeric has been used for centuries. You put it on the face, and it's such a powerful tyrosinase inhibitor that even within a matter of days, if somebody had this, you know, big wedding to go to, and oftentimes those weddings are, you know, a week long, and they they would have their skin would look lighter. But the problem is, is that the entire time they're doing it, they're bright yellow. So over the years, companies have tried to take pieces of the turmeric root or something that may be to duplicate that. And it just doesn't give the same effect. But for the first time, we've been able to take the active chemical and make it colorless. So that's exciting. And it's also anti-inflammatory. It also has a nice anti-aging effect. Very exciting. Well, I know whenever I get turmeric on my hands or something, it's a big problem. So I can imagine nobody would want that staining their skin. Well, and not only that, but you know, when you take, if you take turmeric, what what color are the pills or the capsules? They're always yellow. And so this is this is really exciting that we've been able to do this. And now this is the fourth area. It gets even better. Okay. So you remember that I said that. What happens when you're the sun exposure, how it damages your DNA? So you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to, for, for individuals that may not have heard this before, your, your genes are made up of DNA, and some of your genes are expressive genes, and they express out instructions. Now, that's the only instructions that your body is going to listen to. If you have a hangnail, if you have a broken bone, if you have a cold, you're going to remain that way. You may not recover. If, if those instructions don't tell the body what to do. So when you're born, those instructions are perfect. And of course, at that point, you're in a very anabolic state. You are growing. You are making muscle. You're making brain cells. I mean, you're developing so rapidly. And you're in that state pretty much, and you're instruct, everything's being repaired 
pretty much as it should be. And then when you get to be around 20 or so, you go into a catabolic state. You know, you're not going to get any taller. Your body pretty much is done developing. And so you're in a, you start to go into more of a slow decline. You may not really notice it at that point, but that's what you're doing. You're declining. So what the reason we talk about it takes 10, 20, 30 years for this damage to really start to show up. And most of it happened before the age of 10. It was programmed into your DNA. Is again, you could have all kinds of sun damage and you're 12 years old. It doesn't mean you're going to have lines and wrinkles or discoloration. It takes a while for those instructions to get to the point where they're not repairing the same way. So you start to see this. Maybe you start to see your pores look larger because you're not producing as much collagen. Maybe you start to see that you have some discoloration. You start to see fine lines. Your, your, your skin just isn't as bright. It's not turned over the same way. So the fourth area of technology is retinol. Now, this is not just any retinol. But retinol, and this is not me saying this. This is an actual medical fact. Retinol can actually repair the instructions coming from your DNA. Now, you know, today you hear about all these ingredients. Well, this is just like a retinoid, but it doesn't have the irritation. And maybe your skin might look better if you use that non-retinoid ingredient. But I'm going to tell you something. It's not going to repair the instructions coming from your DNA. And you can take two twin girls with identical DNA. And you can put them on the same skincare program, but have one using the appropriate retinoid. And in 10 years, one will look 10 or 15 years younger than the other. And we're not talking about superficial changes. Oh, gee, my skin looks better. It looks brighter. We're talking about, I, I mean, the appearance of, of deep lines. We're talking about significant changes of the skin. And the skin just functions differently. And retinoids are one of the gold standard for pigmentation, not just because they help to get it out of the surface faster but because it changes the way the skin functions. And again, if your skin is functioning younger, it's functioning more like it did when you weren't getting pigmentation. Makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense, yeah. And so we've talked about acids, we've talked about peptides, tyrosinase, and retinol. And, and right, and, and um, turmeric. And turmeric, mm -hmm. yep. Um, one piece of the puzzle we haven't talked about is sunscreen and oh yes i want to touch on it and and um get into a little bit it's interesting that you mentioned jan the piece about damage not showing up until your later years because yeah, exactly i i talk with a lot of young people online about the importance of of sun protection but what i here over and over again is people feel like the sun evens out their complexion. They feel like mm -hmm. it helps their acne. So sometimes there's a oh lot of resistance from the younger crowd to really embrace sunscreen, which I know I, I can't <laughs> believe, <laughs> but I have a hard time fighting this battle sometimes. Well, you, you know, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about skincare mess, but you're, you're right. There is misconception about the sun makes acne better. And I will tell you, it actually doesn't. It makes it worse. I mean, it can make it really bad. Right. Because what it does is suppresses, it hardens the surface of the skin and it suppresses oil and it suppresses 
the activity so that it may seem like the skin is clearer, but when September comes along and you're, you know, you're back in school and you're not sunbathing all the time, the skin softens and then the eruptions are worse than ever. And it's also anti-inflammatory, or excuse me, it's also inflammatory and acne is an inflammatory disorder. And we could go on and on. But what I will tell you is that it's literally the worst thing that you can do. And uh, it affects immune function. I could just go on and on and on. <laughs> but pigmentation, and again, if you're, you know, if you're 15 or 16 or even 20, you're going to think that, wow, it evens out because it kind of takes some of the areas that maybe where I feel like my skin is lighter here or a little darker here, and it kind of evens it out. But I guarantee you that you're going to end up with a lot of abnormal pigmentation that you'll be very, very unhappy with. And so sunscreen is absolutely critical. And what happens is when you go out in the sun and you're stimulating what you're doing is that UV light and the, how pigmentation is stimulated in the first place is UV light comes in contact or stimulates the active tyrosinase. Now, let me give you an example. If you didn't have active tyrosinase, you wouldn't have any pigment at all. And it wouldn't matter how much sun exposure you got. So, for example, individuals that have the genetic issue and they're albino, they have no active tyrosinase. It doesn't matter how much sun you put them in, they're not going to have any pigment. So first, in the first place to have pigment, you have to have active tyrosinase. But what happens when you go into the sunlight is that it stimulates it more. And it's also a protective mechanism because when you start to get a tan, that's your body's way of saying, we have been damaged. So we're going to produce more pigment to help to prevent more damage the next time you go out in the sun. So you've been damaged. But active tyrosinase is stimulated by sunlight. So number one, if you're trying to get an even skin tone, you have to limit that stimulation of active tyrosinase because depending on your genetic makeup, you may have hyperactive pigment cells. And hyperactive pigment cells in some individuals are one of the reasons why they just so freely produce and throw off uneven pigment. And it's not about the wearing, you know, IG, I need to wear an SPF 100. It has to do with how the sunscreen covers the spectrum of light. You could have an SPF 100 and it might not protect you fully. So you have to have something that covers not only the UVB spectrum, but the UVA spectrum. Now, UVA sunlight penetrates like an X-ray. And this, these are rays that we don't perceive as burning rays, but they go in like an X-ray and they damage your DNA and they wreak all kinds of havoc. And the difference between UVB, and, and let me back up. When we talk about sunscreens and we talk about sun protection, we're talking about protecting a range of visible light that is measured in nanometers. So nanometers would be like if I said, you know, you're a yard away. That's a, that's a way of measuring it, right? Well, nanometers measure the penetration of light. And so they start at zero, and for visible light, it goes to 400 nanometers. 
Now UVB, which we refer to as burning rays, goes from 0 to 320. And then UVA starts at 320 and it goes to 400. Now UVB is the most intense in the summertime. And that's why in the summertime, you're more likely to burn, you're more likely to tan. Um, I was raised in Southern California in San Diego. And if we had some really warm days in November or December, I couldn't tan the way that I did in the summertime because the, the sun is further away. And it also are, these, these are the rays that they don't penetrate um, through clothing. You know, you don't get burned through wearing a jacket or something like that. And so they're the most intense between the, the, the time of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. And that's why you're always warned when you want to wear a sunscreen, you know, make sure you're covered up between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. because that's the time when you're most likely to burn. Now, UVA, on the other hand, is the same intensity all year long. You could be 12 noon, December, it's 30 degrees outside and you're getting the same amount of UVA as you are when it's 100 degrees in August. And not only that, it's the same intensity all day long and it's the same intensity even if there's cloud cover, it's raining or it's snowing. And it could be really dark outside. And 50% goes through the windshield of your car. And all this UV light, UVB and UVA come into your house. So if you have your drapes open and you've got nice big windows and you're at home during the week, you're getting about as much sunlight as you would as a weekend on the beach. You've got to wear your sunscreen. And again, UVA penetrates like an x-ray. So it does damage in a much deeper manner, and it's probably a lot more responsible for a lot of some of the things that happen in terms of abnormal cell formation and skin cancers and things like that. It's the deeper skin cancers. And if you're wearing even a really light T-shirt, you know, you think, okay, I'm covered up, my arms are covered up, but it's kind of one of those thinner T-shirts, that's only about, against UVA, it's only about like um, an SPF 2. So you need to wear a sunscreen, number one, that covers the entire spectrum. And a lot of people think, well, then I've got to wear, you know, like a, um, a physical block. That's not true. Some of the chemical blocks actually give better protection. Yeah. Could you touch on that a little bit, Jan? I know there's a lot of confusion around physical versus chemical SPFs. What's better? What should I choose? Well, let me tell you this. Sunscreens are considered over-the-counter drugs. So they're regulated by the FDA, and that's why you see all this, this drug fact box, and you see the same exact warnings and the same exact directions and everything on them. And the FDA requires that companies have their sunscreens tested to make certain that they are efficacious. So you have to go to an outside agency. This is not something that's done in your lab. You have to go to an outside agency. You have to pay. It has to go through special testing. Now, when those agencies test a sunscreen and they come up with an SPF factor, like it's a 33 or it's a 35 or a 40, and it comes up with what it's protecting in terms of your UVA, UVB range, they don't know whether they're testing a chemical screen or a physical screen. They have no idea. So that's number one. Number two, I'll give you another example. This is from a medical study a number of years ago. So 
Parsol 1789 is a trade name for oxybenzone, which is a really, really good chemical for the UVA range, and it protects in the UVB as well. And in this study, they actually paired oxybenzone up against zinc oxide. And they were measuring something called immune function protection. Now, immune function protection is less obvious than, gee, did I burn or I didn't burn. It has to do with your the ability for the sunscreen to actually help your body or to actually have factors that are going to give you protection against some of the things that happen with, with the cascading effect and the inflammation. Well, the in terms of immune function protection, the zinc, which is a physical screen, had an SPF factor of two. And it started out as 15, but it only had an SPF factor of two in terms of immune function protection. And the, the Parcel 1789, which was an SPF, um, uh, excuse me, they were both, as, I think they both started out as SPF 15s, um, had an immune function protection. It actually tripled to a 45. Now, immune function protection is really important in terms of how you react in certain situations and whether or not it might result in pigmentation. Mm -hmm. So um, the important thing is to get a sunscreen that goes throughout the spectrum. That's really important. And it's critical to make certain that you use it all the time. And that means when you're indoors. Now, I'll give you one other thing that it's really important to understand about sunscreens. You can wear what you think is the best sunscreen in the world, and you're still going to get about 3% UV light. So there's no such thing as 100% protection. 3% might not sound like a lot, but that's a lot. Mm -hmm. So how do you mitigate that? Now, you can't make claims for this because the FDA only allows you to make claims for the very narrow field of exactly what's been approved in terms of the sunscreen um, topical agents that have been approved. But you can have other things in a sunscreen that have been shown to make a huge difference. And I'll give you an example. One of my favorites, we make, excuse me, three different sunscreens and they're all amazing, but my favorite happens to be our SPF 33. Give you an example. Our SPF 33 has something in it called phytomelanin. Now, phytomelanin is chemically identical to human melanin. It comes from the date palm, and it's colorless. Human melanin is the most protective element you have in your body. It's anti-inflammatory and anti-aging. So, for example, if you have really dark pigment, you, you're not going to get lines and wrinkles. That's how protective it is. And so this is actually... Um, a very anti-inflammatory, it's anti-aging, and it adds another element of protection. It's kind of like putting a blanket over your head. We also have something called beta-glucan-1,3. Now, beta-glucan-1,3 um, is something that attaches to your Langerhans cells. Langerhans cells look like little curlicues. And when we talk about immune function protection, Langerhans cells, they, they look like pigtails and they kind of go to the surface of the skin and you're, they're one of your first lines of defense. So what they're doing is they're like little soldiers that are constantly out there looking for things that they need to be on guard about. Radiation would be one of them. And the idea is that then they put in place 
certain functions and factors that help to prevent some of the damage. But what happens with radiation is that your Langerhans cells get temporarily put out of commission or greatly compromised. And what beta-glucan 1-3 helps to prevent them from being compromised. And you can also have anti-inflammatories and other things that can make a big difference in helping to kind of shore up um, what the sunscreen doesn't necessarily or isn't able to fully address. So those things are really important. And I'm getting one other thing. So today, the statistics are that only one third of Americans wear sunscreen on a consistent basis. And sometimes the numbers drop. Now we're not stupid. So why is that? I'll give you the number one reason. Number one, we don't like how they feel. Yeah. And this is really important because if you put it on and you feel like, okay, this makes me break out more. This makes my skin feel greasy. You know, my makeup looks horrible. So I made a decision. I was this avid sunbather and I made a decision when I was, you know, going on 24, no more sunbathing. I'm going to wear a sunscreen. And I hated sunscreens. And I can't tell you how many, I mean, I tried every sunscreen on the market for years and years until I started developing my own sunscreens. And what I did is I developed all of our sunscreens have a, a microscopic oil capture system. And what this means is they have an unlimited capacity to absorb oil, but they cannot absorb water and they can't absorb actives. So let's just say your skin is kind of combination or oily. It balances it out. And I mean, it's amazing because I, I feel so much better with it on than I do without it. You usually can't say that about sunscreens, but if you're dry, it leaves your skin so soft and so silky and so glowing. And um, we make one that has a tint. And the uh, caveat about that is, you know, you're supposed to put sunscreen all over your face, over your ears, your mouth, your neck, and your chest. So if you're going to use a tinted sunscreen, are you going to put it all over your chest and get it all over your clothes? So I always say, use a tinted sunscreen like you would a foundation and make sure you wear a really good sunscreen everywhere. Um, we also make a physical screen as well. We, you know, we, we cover the gamut, but like I said, my favorite happens to be our SPF 33. Okay. Well, those are good tips. I, I also gave up tanning around that age and I think it's one of the best, best things I could have ever done for myself and my skin. And yeah, I don't have any, um, regrets about doing that. I think it's, it's, a very smart idea. Not appealing to everybody, but a good idea nonetheless. Um, Jan, how about when you apply your sunscreen on a daily basis? Are you putting it head to toe before you walk out the door to go to the office? No. No? Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's give you, an, get, to give you an example. So today I have on a, a sweater and I have on a leather skirt and I have on fishnets and boots and all that. Okay. So I'm, I'm covered up, yeah. but what I'm really always very consistent with, it's my face, it's my ears, it's my neck. I go around behind my neck. I do my chest. 
I do my hands, you know, making sure I get all my fingers and I go up my arms because even if you're wearing long sleeves, your sleeves can kind of move up and down. Yeah. Now in the summertime, if I'm wearing something where I'm, 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 I'm sleeveless or, you know, I'm less covered, then I'm going to make a point of making certain that I, I get the sunscreen everywhere. Something else I'll mention to you a lot of times, you know, you know, you, how you're here, you're supposed to put on sunscreen like 30 minutes before you go outside or whatever the time frame is that it says on the sunscreen. Yes. And people are not, that's another reason like, well, I'm in a hurry. I can't wait 30 minutes right. for it to work. That's how long it takes for it to become water resistant. Sunscreens work as soon as you put them on, just okay. so you know. Okay. Yeah, that is a good tip. So circling back to how our genetics inform discoloration, could you touch on what's at stake when we're talking about higher Fitzpatrick types and discoloration? See, I think that we've really done a huge disservice to individuals that have more pigment because we tend to discount you know, oh, gee, they, they don't get rosacea. That's not true. It's not as frequent, but they can get rosacea. It just doesn't show up the same way. And they, they also, I, I'll tell you something else, they're at risk, just like lighter skin types for various types of skin cancer. And we don't know why, but when individuals that have a lot of pigment, let's say African-Americans, even if they're highly pigmented, if they do get skin cancer, we don't know why it's much more aggressive. So they're at greater risk. And what we, what we do know is that probably the reason why someone has so much pigment to begin with is because generations and generations and thousands of years, they were in an area of the world where there was a lot of sun exposure. And so genetically over time, individuals develop ways in which they're coping with that, which would be darker skin. But the, 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 the issue with that is that also those skin cells tend to be more hyperactive. And for example, um, when you look at pigment cells, if you have an individual that has less pigment, the pigment cells are kind of packaged. They're pa it's like having a membrane or a sac around them. And so the fairer your skin is, the more tightly packaged your melanocytes are. The darker your skin is, the more loosely packaged your melanocytes are. And what that means is, is that they're more easily thrown off to the surface. They're more easily stimulated by UV light. And they're like, I like to use the term kind of hyperactive. And so that's probably one of the primary ways that I would say genetics affect how individuals react. And so we tend to overall, and this is not always the case, I don't want to make generalizations, but we tend to see individuals, whether it's Asian, whether it's Hispanic, African-American, um, you know, Mediterranean, et cetera, that tend to have more discoloration overall, again, from more of a genetic or ethnic standpoint. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Um, and I think similarly, it's also important to talk about 
discoloration from acne and how that can affect darker Fitzpatrick types in terms mm-hmm. of uh, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, which is not yeah. acne scarring, which we have debunked in our first episode. Yeah. Um, so- but yeah, that's really frustrating for a lot of people um, and would love to hear your thoughts. Okay, so that's different. That's a whole different type of discoloration. But boy, is it frustrating because I've always said you can have somebody who's maybe their acne, we get a, get them completely clear, but you kind of look at them and you're not sure they're clear because you see all this discoloration. So here's what happens. Acne is an inflammatory disorder. And as that inflammation makes its way to the surface, depending on the severity of the acne, you know, whether or not you've had a, um, what we call a papule, whether it is a, a nodule or mini cyst, or whether it's a full-blown cyst, um, as it makes its way to the surface, it disturbs little blood vessels. And these blood vessels, how they get their color, how blood gets its color, um, is through things like bilirubin, veritirubin. And so they get a little bit leaky. And what that does is it causes a discoloration. So this is different than what we're talking about when we talk about uh, active tyrosinase, etc. And that discoloration, if you've got fair skin, it might be kind of reddish. If you have skin that has more pigment, it can be purplish, it can be brownish, it can even be blackish. And it can take a long time to go away. So there's a couple of things. Um, number one, you don't want to break out in the first place. There's no cure for acne, but you can prevent it. You can get complete total clearing. Absolutely. And I and I've it, this we we prove this time and time and time and time again. Secondly, if you have the discoloration, one of the things that's in duality, which we recommend using with the system, which again for complete um, total clearing, duality has something that clears away that discoloration about three hundred times faster. And third, um, we also have something that is that people use like maybe once or twice, maybe as much as three times a week, but it's our Marini multi-acid corrective pads. And this has got something in it. This is something that we, this is a fairly recent introduction, but this is something where, uh, you know, you wash your face and then you just wipe the pad over the face, leave it on about 10 minutes and rinse it off and then put the rest of the products on. And not only does it resurface the skin and not only does it make a difference in the appearance of actual scarring and it makes the skin look younger and smoother and all of that, but it also has something that works with that endpoint or that point at which that inflammation takes place and that discoloration and it gets rid of it really fast. I mean, I've seen individuals in a two week period where I was really, really astounded. Yeah, that's amazing. So, and how would you suggest using the peel pads alongside Duality, which is incredible, you guys. I've recently opened a Jan Marini account and my acne clients are loving Duality. But how would you kind of use those two actives in the same way? Well, when I talk about managing acne and preventing it, you have to do certain things every single day. If you miss one day, I guarantee you in the next week or maybe a few days, you're going to break out. You absolutely will. So you've got to do these things on a consistent basis. And that's the system. And that's duality. 
And duality is a combination of retinol in one chamber, which is a gold standard for acne, but it also transforms the skin in terms of making it just the whole texture and making it look younger, et cetera. But the other chamber is benzoyl peroxide. And we don't have time to get into this, but the benzoyl peroxide does not, it's not drying. Not the benzoyl, this is not the benzoyl peroxide you get at the pharmacy or by prescription or on infomercial. It's really not, you guys. It's it's not dry. Take somebody yeah. who doesn't have acne and put them on duality and transform their skin in terms of anti-aging. So it's for adults because we deal with all these different issues. So that has to be done every single night. And the pads are something that you do on an occasional basis because what it does is it perfects it. So, you know, your maybe your skin is really clear. Um, because you've gotten that way, but you've got some discoloration and you wish your pores were even smaller and you wish your skin was even smoother and more radiant and reflective. So these are things that you can do that we can keep building on to get to a greater and greater level of perfection. Okay. Amazing. Well, I think that is a great a great summary, Jan. And we thank you so much for your time and packing so much into this episode. Um, you really just are such a gem. So thank you for coming oh, and joining us again. It's such a pleasure, Tessa. I just really, I just always love being able to uh, participate and thank you so much for having me on and everybody who is listening. Thank you because I know I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you guys and really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll do it again. Absolutely. I know we will. Jan, I'm going to link your social media and your website in our show notes below. Is there anything else you want to shout out or anything that we've maybe left out? Wow. You know, I can't think of anything. You ask great questions. And um, if, if you get any questions that come in and you need me to uh, respond to them, I'm happy to do that. And Gosh, it's just been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Jan. And thank you all for listening. This has been Jan Marini and Tessa Zolli. Thanks so much. And we will talk to you in the next episode.